Hard Feelings by Mark Coggins is a bang bang thrill ride, says best-selling author Seth Harwood, who adds that the lead character of Winnie is a female Jack Reacher. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 23 Winnie At a little after two in the morning, Winnie walked with Reardon along the side of Highway 128 in a semi-rural area of Hillsburg. There were no lights on the road. The only illumination came from a quarter moon dipping below the hills to their left. They'd parked their car in the lot of a sad, isolated elementary school comprised entirely of prefab buildings and were hiking east a mile or so back to Marionette Vineyards for a reconnaissance. They were dressed for the job. Winnie was in her standard uniform of dark tracksuit with the RF shield and one of the body armor vests they had taken off the winemaker's men in Palm Springs. She also had a pair of the captured night vision goggles. Reardon was wearing the black pullover and jeans she'd picked out for him in Calistoga, coupled with a pair of matching black Chuck Taylors and ankle socks. Even the underwear she'd selected for him was black. He'd been fine with everything but the socks. Standing at the checkout counter at the sporting goods store, he'd said, When I wore Chuck Taylors in grade school, when Converse USA still made the shoes instead of sweatshops in China, and when basketball players in the NBA endorsed them instead of hipsters in copy shops, no man would be caught dead wearing ankle socks. Those were for girls who played tennis and the only people who wore black socks with athletic shoes were old men with pasty white legs. Well, said Winnie, the 50s weren't exactly the decade of fashion. This was the 60s, and you know the part about old men holds, though. Thank you for that, he'd said after he absorbed the comment. In addition to the clothes from Calistoga, Reardon wore the second body armor vest and carried the other pair of night vision goggles. The P-90 assault rifle hung from a strap on his shoulder. Winnie was armed with her sawed-off, and both of them had their faces blacked. On the drive past Marionette, they'd seen that the western border of the winery was delineated by a row of widely spaced trees. As the trees and the towering chain-link fence in front of them came into view, Reardon gestured to the left, toward a vineyard in the neighboring property. She nodded her understanding. They jumped an irrigation canal that ran beside the road and threaded between strands of a barbed wire fence. They jogged down a vineyard row, the stumpy, contorted vines on the trellises, projecting threatening-looking shadows at their feet. Twice Winnie stumbled on the uneven ground, and twice Reardon stopped her from sprawling face down in the mustard grass that grew between the vines. Without feedback from her feet and legs, it was hard enough to walk on level ground in the daylight, much less run a veritable obstacle course at night. At the end of the row, 
They zigged right along a tractor path to within a hundred yards of Marionette, and then zagged up another row in another patch of vines. Winnie was breathing hard now, and she felt the heat of her body rising through the turtleneck of the RF shield. The warm night, the uphill slope of the terrain, and the extra insulation afforded by the body armor were conspiring to make the jaunt more of a workout than she'd planned. She wondered how the old man in the black socks was handling it. When they reached the end of the second row, they squatted by the end post of the trellis to peer down a second tractor path at the fence and trees guarding Marionette. At this distance, Winnie noticed details she had missed before. The fence looked new, most likely installed after the winemaker bought the property. It was over 10 feet high and was topped with a coil of concertina wire. The trees she recognized as olive. Reardon brought his mouth to her ear. In a panting whisper, he said, Let's sneak forward to the row closer to the property line and then duck back into the vines. She gave him the thumbs up and watched as he scuttled past the end post and down the tractor path. She followed a moment later, running in a crouch to the row he had selected. By the time she rounded the corner, he had already thrown himself on the grass. He rolled onto his stomach and swiveled around to peer beneath the vines. She flopped at his side, and they both struggled to position the bulky night vision goggles over their eyes. At first, the eerie green tableau projected through the goggles failed to add much to what Winnie had already observed. But gradually, as she accustomed herself to the absence of color cues and the flattened depth of field, she was able to pick out details she'd missed before. Well inside the fence line, a row of stainless steel tanks gleamed faintly under an open-walled shed. Farther back, a three-story warehouse with a roller door partially open abutted the hillside. Between the tanks and the warehouse, a portal trimmed in stone seemed to lead directly into the hill, the newly dug caves the Calistoga wine shop owner had mentioned. But there were details closer to the fence that she'd missed entirely. Reardon reached over to grab her arm, forgetting again that she couldn't feel his touch. She noticed the movement anyway, and when he pointed emphatically to the far left, she saw what had captured his attention. A man in a zippered one-piece suit walked along a well-worn path just in front of the olive trees. Strapped low on his back was a metal box that looked like it housed electronic equipment. Protruding from the box was a girder-like strut that extended to a point just above his head. Atop the strut was a spherical object with cameras and other devices embedded across its surface. It reminded Winnie of the cameras Google put on top of the cars they sent to photograph streets for their maps, and she suspected it had a similar function. Certainly it was taking pictures, most likely video rather than still, and it was probably listening and detecting motion as well. It was a portable electronic watchdog, no doubt beaming all the information it captured back to a central control room. The obvious question was why the winemaker needed an electronic watchdog when he had a human to do the watching. Winnie was pretty sure she knew the answer. The first clue was the stilted, choppy gait of the watchman. He walked like a robot. Further clues could be gleaned from his failure to watch anything but the middle distance in front of him, 
and the absence of any extraneous gesture or motion, like scratching an itch or running a hand through his hair. He was another electronic slave, like the women in the Nevada brothel. Winnie didn't doubt that this was another effort to militarize the technology. It wasn't hard to imagine a combat post patrolled by captured enemy insurgents equipped in this fashion. There would be any number of advantages, not least of which was psychological. Who would want to fire on former brothers-in-arms? Winnie got Reardon's attention and pointed to the back of her neck. Then she pointed toward the watchman. Reardon nodded, the goggles amplifying the motion in a cartoonish way. They watched as the guard passed behind one of the olive trees and emerged in the clearing in front of them. He stopped, and they hugged the ground in response. The guard did a slow pirouette, turning so that his back faced them. A light on the spherical object winked, and Winnie could only guess what sort of instrument or sensor had been aimed their way. Seconds leached by. The light winked once more, and then at last the guard turned to face the path and began walking along the olive trees in his stilted gait. She propped herself up on her elbows, and Reardon followed suit. He held his hands out in a, what was that, gesture. She shook her head. The loamy smell of the soil wafted up to her. The ground was soft and damp, and Winnie was sure that if she had sensation in her limbs, she would feel a clammy wetness soaking into the fabric that covered her elbows and knees. She decided there were diminishing returns to staying any longer. They'd gotten a feel for the layout of the property and learned that it was patrolled by zombie-machine hybrids, but what else was to be gained? This was, as Reardon had emphasized in the car, only a reconnaissance. The appearance of another guard on the path seemed to underscore the point. He walked in the same robotic gait and carried the same pack of instruments, but he was taller and older than the first one. She and Reardon hugged the ground once more, but the new guard didn't stop to aim an instrument in their direction. As soon as the guard passed, Reardon made an emphatic gesture with his thumb, pointing back the way they had come. Winnie nodded just as emphatically. But they had dallied too long. A tongue of fire flashed from beyond the fence, and she heard the muffled farting noise of suppressed rounds. Dirt kicked up inches from her face. Winnie leaped back and led Reardon in a hunched, scrambling run to the end of the row and down the tractor path. More rounds chased after them. She weaved as she ran, having learned from her very first encounter with the winemaker's men, when her husband had been murdered in an ambush, that going in a straight line was an invitation for a bullet in the back. A tractor parked on the side of the path offered temporary sanctuary. She dove behind the oversized rear wheels and then heard a sequence of heart-slamming sounds. A bullet ricocheted off the metal of the tractor, thudded into a softer target, and a body dropped to the ground. Fuck, groaned Reardon. She slithered around the tire to grab his arm and hauled him to cover behind the wheel, more shots whizzing overhead as she worked. Reardon groaned again and brought up his free hand. Where are you hit? She demanded, louder than she meant to. Vest, he wheezed, struggling for breath. 
Anyone else would have run their hands over his body, checking for blood. Instead, she yanked off the night vision goggles, shoved her face inches from his chest, and scanned for a wound. She found it after a manner, a ragged hole torn in his pullover just below his right pectoral. She poked a finger into the hole and saw the lighter-colored fabric covering his body armor had been shredded as well, but the plate beneath it was only pockmarked. The round hadn't penetrated. She felt herself tearing up. You're one lucky bastard, she croaked. Lucky? I'm in agony, he said, returning to his sarcastic self. I think I cracked a rib. Can you move? Yeah, but in case you didn't notice, there's more than just the guy behind the fence. I saw three or four muzzle flashes from the vineyard on our side. They sent a whole squad of Donovan's ex-Navy SEALs after us. The first shots were only meant to flush us out. I hope you got a good plan. There's no way out of here but the way we came. But as soon as we pick a vineyard row, they're going to triangulate on it and the place it dumps out. We've got to start down one and then crawl under the vines to another. We should crawl to one closer to them, then. They won't expect it. Good. You go first. I'll lay down a suppressing fire. You go first. I don't want you to get stranded. No, you can't do dick with that sawed off. She realized it was the right thing tactically, but she hated to abandon him. She pulled the goggles back on and crept forward to the front tires while he struggled to crouch by the back ones. Without warning, he popped up and began raking the vineyard with slugs from the assault rifle. Go, he shouted. She covered the distance to the grapes in two hungry strides. She combat crawled a short link down the row she landed in, then rolled under the vines to lie in the one to her left. Reardon nearly dove on top of her a moment later. Christ, that hurt, he hissed next to her ear. Keep the party going. Let's get over four or five more. They rolled, crawled, and slithered their way across another five rows, ending only a few rows from where they had been stationed by the fence. Sporadic shooting continued, and Winnie thought she could hear men talking in hushed tones not so very far away. She helped Reardon to his feet, and they hurried down the road to the next tractor path, making sure to keep their heads well below the tops of the vines. Reardon peered around the trellis post, looking east towards Marionette and then west towards their car. He twitched visibly at something in the western view. He stepped back and held up a single finger, pointed in the direction that made him twitch, and then held his hands out a few feet apart. She nodded. One bad guy very close. He made a gun with his hand, pantomimed a shooting motion, and then pointed over the tractor path to the next section of the vineyard. Winnie nodded again. Reardon took a knee by the end post, laid the P-90 gingerly against the wood, and leveled it on a line about three feet above the ground. Just as she was thinking the bad guy must be squatting too, the P-90 coughed, and Reardon lurched forward out of his crouch. She grabbed him by the collar as he rose and hauled him across a tractor path to the relative safety of the next plot of vines. She saw a man dressed in camo sprawled face down on the ground as she passed. 
More suppressed gunfire erupted to the west and north, but it was far enough away that she was certain the winemaker's men were aiming at shadows. They hurried down the row until they came to the barbed wire fence that protected the property from the road. There was only one problem. A white van was parked 50 yards down, facing them. Another man in camo leaned against it, with an assault rifle laid out on the hood. They stepped back into the vines to huddle. We can get under the wire and across the road without him seeing us, said Reardon. No way. We'll be sitting ducks if he does see us, and you aren't exactly moving at top speed. I'll pick him off, then. With that grease gun at night, at that range? Even if you hit him, you'll alert the rest of them. All right, then, he said. What's your suggestion? You stay here and keep him covered. While you go where? Back under the vines to a row nearer to him. Then I'll crawl under the wire and finish him off quietly. He stared down at his feet while he rocked from one to the other like a little boy who didn't want to go to school. It was hard for either of them to let the other take risks now. Okay, he said finally, but be careful. A smart remark formed on her lips, but she bit it off. She pulled off the night vision goggles and held them out to him. Hold these for me. I don't need them for this. Reardon took the goggles without comment and reached around to the small of his back to produce one of the captured tasers. But you might find a use for this. Why in the world did you decide to bring that? He grinned. I tried to bring the Luger, but these new pants are too loose and it kept slipping. This is lighter and bulky enough to stay in place. You're lucky you didn't electrify your ass. I love you too. Now get going. She pocketed the taser and dropped to the ground. She combat crawled beneath the first trellis and kept going until she was even with the center of the van. She could just see the left foot of the gunman sticking out from the front tire. All that remained was the barbed wire fence and the irrigation ditch. The barbed wire was relatively easy. The lowest strand was several inches above her highest points, her ass and her head. She cleared it without catching either part on the wire. The ditch was another matter. It was too wide to crawl over without putting some part of her body in it. And while it wasn't full of water, there was a dark puddle of indeterminate depth at the bottom. Her main worry was slipping and making a splash. The sawed-off, which she'd been holding by the barrel as she crawled, was also going to complicate any maneuver that required two free hands. Winnie considered standing upright, or partially upright, to leap across, but decided there was too much chance of attracting the gunman's attention. In the end, she edged into the canal like she was merging onto a highway, crossing at a much shallower angle than she would have if she crawled directly across. Winnie moved slowly to avoid making splashes, and the shallow approach allowed her to keep the hand holding the sod off clear of the water. The strategy did mean she was thoroughly soaked with mud and water by the time she slithered across to the other side. Yet another time, lack of sensation proved an advantage. Once out of the canal, Winnie realigned herself to intercept the gunman and snaked under the van to a point inches away from his feet. Above her, 
She heard him clear his throat. He said, Base is still clear, into some sort of radio. Then, Roger that, base out. Winnie laid the sod off to one side and pulled the taser from her pocket. She knew the weapon was more effective if aimed at the torso or the thigh, but it would be folly to clamber out from under the van to get a better shot. The lower leg was the best she could hope for. She cleared the safety and aimed the targeting laser at a meaty portion of his calf. Then she yanked the trigger. The probes jumped out from the taser and embedded themselves mere inches apart. That was also less than ideal. The weapon worked better with a larger distance for the current to flow. These ruminations were lost on the gunman, who made horrible growling noises and did a backflip onto the shoulder of the road, writhing in the dirt as he clutched at his calf. His rifle bounced off his chest and then clattered to the ground. Winnie pumped the trigger once more to ensure the full discharge and then scrambled on top of him. She soon found that he was down, but not out. He slammed the heel of his hand into her chest, knocking her back. He thrust up with his hips, attempting to buck her off. Then he twisted to reach his rifle. It was a mistake. Winnie rained a vicious blow down on the side of his head, smashing his ear with her palm. His eardrum ruptured, and he howled in reaction, instinctively cradling his head with his arms. She reached across him for the rifle and mashed the upper receiver into his throat. He was fighting back, trying to push the rifle away, when Reardon came charging up. He dropped by her side and added his strength to hers. The gunman gurgled and kicked, but finally went limp. By unspoken agreement, they held the rifle in place for another long minute until they were absolutely certain he was dead. Winnie looked over to Reardon. He'd taken off the night vision goggles, and his face was drawn and concerned. He started to say something, stopped himself, and settled on, Was that your idea of getting rid of him quietly? She knew he meant to say something more serious, but she was glad of the lighter tone. The only noise I heard was you wheezing on the way over. Winnie retrieved the sod off and stood. Reardon stood with her. Well, you're welcome. I had it under control. What next? Hike or take the van? The van, no question, if they left the keys. The keys, it turned out, weren't in the van, but Reardon found them in the gunman's pocket. They climbed in and made the short run to the grade school with the lights off. They passed no one on the road, and they didn't see or hear anything more of the winemaker's men in the vineyard. At the school, Reardon parked beside their rented SUV and clicked the keyless opener. He was out of the van and on his way to the driver's door when he checked up and detoured to the rear of the van. Might as well see if they left us any other goodies. Sure, she said. They've been generous so far. Reardon yanked open the cargo doors. There, lying side by side, as unblinking and stiff as ten soldiers, were two Hispanic men outfitted with bulky packs of electronic instruments.
have been listening to No Hard Feelings, a finalist for the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Thank you.